Hey, and welcome to Emmanuel Anglican Church. If you haven't already heard me say that, and if you haven't met me, if I haven't met you, my name is Father Aaron Damiani. You can call me Aaron, Pastor Aaron, Father Aaron, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, and would love to meet you at the, uh, we'll have a, some food afterwards, some snacks, and I'll be up there. Look for the guy in the white robe. Um, we're in a series now, right, right now, kind of in the midst of a series called Who Are You? Who Are You? And it's about discovering, and in some cases, rediscovering our true identity and our true purpose as those who are united with Christ or who are offered to be united with Christ. Now, the question, who are you, can feel threatening, can't it? Who are you? Because some of us, well, maybe we don't know who we are yet. We're still figuring that out. And some of us don't like who we are. And so when we hear the question, who are you, immediately we start to feel defensive, like we have to come up with an answer rather than freely give an answer. When you hear the question, who are you, what comes to mind? Does it sound like, who are you really? Is that how the question comes across to you? Who are you really? Behind the Instagram feed. And whatever is on display in your Instagram feed, who are you behind that? What's the real life? Who are you underneath all of the accomplishments? When we pull back the accomplishments and look inside your soul, what do we see? Who's the real you behind the big personality or the demurring personality? We've all got flaws and weaknesses, every one of us. And yet, okay, in order to get through the day, we have to present ourselves to the world, don't we? And it's not always helpful to the other person to present our flaws and weaknesses. So in some cases, we have two things going on. We've got parts of ourselves we don't like, and then we've got a public face that we need to present. And the two coexisting things can be wearying. It's like when you're having guests over and the house is a total mess. And you're like, put the mess in one room and then lock the door. <laughs> and the guests come over, they're like, wow, you guys really keep a clean house. <laughs> and you're just like, if only you knew, friend. Or maybe like, it's like needing to sell your house. You gotta move, you have to sell your house. And you know your house has issues. You know there's mold in the basement. You know there's like a crack in the foundation. You know there's a hole on the porch, but um, you gotta sell the house and so you stage it. You put a beautiful chandelier in the living room. You put sparkly accessories in the bedroom. So when people walk in, they're like, wow, what a beautiful home. And you're like, yep. You want to buy it? <laughs> if only you knew. And maybe sometimes that's what you say. When you hear the question, who are you? You're like, if only you knew. Who are you? That can sound like, what are you hiding anyway? And many of us really, we hate the distance between what we're hiding and what we're presenting. 
our private self and our public self, we know there's a disconnect. We know there's, a, there's an inauthentic gap, and we hate that gap. And by extension, some of us hate ourselves. Sometimes we feel that our weaknesses, our flaws, and our shame is what defines us. And if only people were to dig a little bit, that's what they'd find out. We're afraid that when people ask the question, who are you, that's the real answer. I am my shame. I am my flaws, and I am what I'm hiding. For instance, maybe you wish that you loved the poor more than you do. You wish that in your life, in your lifestyle, you actually would have interactions with people outside your socioeconomic background. But you don't. The pull of life, the practicalities of life, the, the way the current of your life goes, it just sort of pulls you away from the poor. And, and so in order to cover that up, you kind of post about loving the poor. And you talk about loving the poor but you're really not downwardly mobile at all. Or maybe you wish that you were a person of virtue and courage, but you're enslaved to a secret vice, like porn or hooking up. You hate it, but you can't quit the practice. And maybe you present yourself as loving and patient to most people, like 85% of the people that you meet, experience you as a loving and patient person. But then there's like 15% of people in your life that experience your irritation and your anger that have been hurt by you. So when you hear the question, who are you? It's like, okay, I'm a fraud. I'm an unfinished house with impressive staging, okay? I'm a clean house with a very messy room. Now, what does union with Christ have to offer us when we're split between a public and a private self? What good news is there in our union with Jesus Christ when we don't live up to the noble ideas of who we want to be? What good is our union with Christ when, truth be told, we hate ourselves? Let me tell you something, friends. And I mean this with all my heart. Union with Christ is such a profound relief to the pressure that you are under. It's the ultimate cure for people who feel as if they have two faces, people who hate themselves, people who are caught between shame on the one hand and pride on the other hand, depending on how they're performing any given day. Now this week we're looking at how our union with Christ means that we are Christ's workmanship. We are Christ's workmanship if we are in Christ. Now the image of workmanship comes from uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which we're tracking through the book of Ephesians in between now and uh, the end of Lent. When we're united with Christ, he rebuilds our life from bottom to top a complete renovation, a complete rebuilding. He's a master workman. He knows exactly, he loves to go to work on human hearts individually and collectively. 
not only does he reconcile us with ourselves, he reconciles us with other people in a very meaningful way so that there's no longer a threat that you'll be exposed as a fraud. There's no hiding from anybody. Jesus Christ loves to turn people into temples. I actually know that was weird. If you don't have a religious background, you're like, what's a temple? A temple is a place where God dwells. And the New Testament, the book of Ephesians, presents the people of God, not individually as temples, but collectively as temples. Yes, you have an individual role to play in this temple. And yes, the living God resides inside of you individually as a name for you. But you're also meaningfully just as much connected with other people who are also united with Christ. And this is a part of his plan of renewing all things in Christ, starting with us, rebuilding us from bottom to top, reconciling us with ourselves, with God, and with each other. We'll shine with his glory as examples of his good workmanship. And wouldn't you want that? And don't you want the relief from either being in despair or being puffed up? Don't you want the the pressure of self-improvement to just be taken off your shoulders? Wouldn't it be great to stop staging? What if you could stop staging altogether? Union with Christ is an identity to, to unseat and set in order all other identities. And it gives us freedom to be who we are, who we're created to be. Yet it can also feel, in as much as it's a relief, it also can feel like it's a threat because it does displace our other chosen identities. And change is coming. When we're united with Christ, we become his workmanship. Not only does he claim ownership of us, like we're his, we're his, but also we're his workmanship. We, we go to work on his behalf, not to earn approval because we already have it. The end result of our life points back to him, not to us. It's too much pressure if it has to point back to us. Too much pressure. What if our life could just really point back to him again and again through the prism of our individual life and personality, but not ending with us? Our life becomes kind of inseparable from Christ forever. We're his and we're his workmanship So what would it mean to receive that? What would it mean to, to say yes to that? Maybe you're here, you've, you've not said yes to that. You're still considering the claims of Christianity. I want you to know you're welcome here. We hope that this can be a spiritual community for you. Maybe you're here and you have said yes to union with Christ, but you're still feeling the gap of what's true and what you experience to be true. Or both. What would it mean for any of us to say yes to our union with Christ for the first time or in a new way and become his workmanship? We'll look at three things here. Number one, a deep inspection, which is always worse than we think. Number two, a great exchange, which is so much better than we think and expect. And finally, an open house. A deep inspection, a great exchange, and an open house. Let's look at the deep inspection. You can find uh, Ephesians 2 in your programs or Bibles. Um, 
And um, let's look at verses one through three here, a deep inspection. Okay, and just for a point of clarity, the author of this letter, his name is Paul, and he was an early Christian leader and uh, theologian and pastor. And he was talking with, he was communicating with churches that he had helped plant across Asia Minor. And he was helping them get their minds around what they said yes to when they said yes to Christ and received the sacrament of baptism. Um, he was helping them get their heads and heart around what Christ meant for them. So he's assuming that people who are reading this are already united with Christ but are still catching up. But maybe you're not in that place. I want you to know this is for you to consider. But if you had said yes to Jesus, this this is for you to own. Verse one says this, and you, now read this as plural, this is plural, and y'all, Okay, and you together were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons and daughters of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Before the workmanship can begin, there needs to be an honest inspection. What does Jesus find when he tours our life? When he opens every door? When he looks in every room? When he here is over every shelf, what is he finding? Jesus goes straight for the flaws. He goes straight for the cracks. Verse one, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he goes a step further. He shows us how those cracks and flaws are part of a fundamentally broken System. This is what Paul is, is, is bringing out here. Verse two, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. We think that we are making individual choices based on reason, based on our best ideas, based on our unique personality and temperament. And to some extent, that's true. But to a large extent, much of our choices and much of our brokenness is part of an interconnected system that is so much bigger than who we are. When Jesus inspects our life in a non-condemning way, in a loving way, with a heart to be turning you into his workmanship, he does go straight for the issues, the parts of us that we hate and want to hide. Maybe the sides of your life that are a burden to you and others. We think of some of the seven deadly sins, anger and greed and sloth and lust. We could add to that other thing, racism. What's a burden to you? What vice has hurt you and hurt other people? How else will you be rebuilt unless those things are uncovered? And don't you want the relief of those things being uncovered by someone who has compassion for you? rather than someone that you're selling yourself to. 
This is part of Jesus' ministry of grace. This is part of his easy yoke. But he doesn't stop there. He shows us how our brokenness is interconnected with the brokenness of the world we inhabit. So sure, maybe you have the basement mold of an addiction. But that addiction is an interconnected whole to a whole series of vices and addictions on a societal level. For instance, the addiction of pornography is connected to the global human trafficking enterprise. Without that, it wouldn't exist. But without the demand, which you are helping to supply, perhaps there wouldn't be as much human trafficking in the world. Behind an addiction to alcohol is part of... uh, a campaign to get you to drink a particular type of alcohol, which is profitable for certain companies. But the more you drink, the more they sell. It's part of an interconnected whole. I'm not saying alcohol is wrong in itself. Yes, maybe you have a callousness in your heart towards the poor, but Jesus shows us how the air that we breathe it is full of racism and selfishness love of self and worship of money and all these things support and keep it going. The prince of the power of the air fuels the systems of the world to keep us going in the tracks of sin and brokenness. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. It's like this, the system has laid out for us a a path for us to walk in Intuitively, it seems like the right path to walk in. We think that it's coming from our own individual choices, but it's not. From our intuition to our institutions, we are stuck in brokenness. And no amount of virtue is going to fix that. Trying to quit sin is like trying to quit sugar in the USA. Have you ever tried to quit sugar, by the way? Anyone here? Seriously, have you tried to quit sugar? What's it like? And why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to quit sugar? It's in everything. It's it's on your marinated chicken. It's in the dressing you put on your kale salad at Panera Bread. It's in ketchup, duh. It's in whole wheat, bread. Do you know that? Sugar is in everything in America. And you know what? You like it that way. You like it that way. Your neurochemistry loves sugar. You and I are probably addicted to sugar. From our neurochemistry to the big food companies. Sugar's in everything. You want it, they're supplying it. Good luck trying to quit sugar in the USA. Although I am kind of trying to try, but we'll see how that goes. (laughs) Now look, this is what Paul is painting. This is the picture Paul is painting here of the system of sin in the world. It's a course of the world. It's a dark power of the world. It's in us and it's out there. And there's no separating those two things. And like we talked about last week, 
like you versus the system, you lose. You versus racism, done. Racism wins. You, you versus the porn industry, you lose. You versus greed, you lose. Trying to become a better person is, is a band-aid on a gashing wound that, that's bleeding to death. The band-aid is, maybe it's impressive to you and me, but it's not going to fix the problem. We were by nature children of wrath, or are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now, maybe you read that and go, oh, this is, uh, you know, angry God language that we can outgrow. But don't think of wrath as unbridled anger. That's projecting our life into the biblical teachings. This is not unhinged anger. This is the wrath of a parent who sees their child enslaved to a cruel master. In the words of a third century theologian, he who does not get angry does not care. It's a sign of attachment. It's a sign of love because we belong to God. But we're enslaved. Uh, One New Testament scholar puts it this way. All of us are children of our time and our time is geared away from God. And that is infuriating to God because of how much he loves us. All of us are children of our time, and our time is systematically and brilliantly geared and designed away from God. And that enslaves us, and we need help. We thought our problems were just that. They were just our problems. Our problems to fix, our problems to hide, our problems to hate ourselves for. And, and this inspection, this deep inspection shows us how deep and interconnected these flaws are. And it's worse than we thought that we can't really fix it. We can't really hide it. That's the inspection and it's, you know, it is worse than we thought. But Jesus offers a great exchange, which is so much better than we thought. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, following the course of the, following bad, following the course of the prince of the power of the air. But God, verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here is a great exchange in Christ. God looks upon our condition of being trapped and enslaved to our sin and he has great love and tenderness towards us. And so before we could even begin to ask him for help, before we could even recognize how grave and deep our condition was. Jesus came to live among us. He took all of our sins upon him, both individually and collectively. He took upon him our deadness. 
give that to me. He took upon him all of our, our greed and lust and racism and religious pride and selfishness. He took that down to the grave. And then the father raised him to life and, and, and seated him with great authority at his right hand where he now runs the universe and is making all things new. And now that man offers a great exchange to us. You sign over the deed of your house to me and I'll sign the deed of my house over to you. So you give me your house with all of its problems that you'd rather hide. Sign it over. Sign over the mold. Sign over the foundational cracks. Sign over the porch that doesn't work. Sign over the mess. Just give it all to me. I want it. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to sign over to you my resurrection, my forgiveness, my ascension to the Father's right hand, my great glory, my eternal life, my good works in the world, my new creation. I want to sign all of this over to you so that you own that forever and ever. And now we're linked, okay, in every way. You and Jesus is saying, we are, we are linked. You sign yourself over to me, I sign myself over to you, and we're never going to be separated. Nothing can separate that. I will always take what you have to give me, and I will always give what I have to give you. He immediately joins you to his power and his resources and his life. And the pressure is, it's off to fix yourselves. And once he owns the house, renovations can begin under his authority and in his timing. And some things will change instantaneously. And some things will change over time as most renovations go but they will be complete because your home is in his hands. Your life is in his hands. You become his workmanship. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he begins knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live, it, live in it himself. The deep inspection of our life shakes us to our core. But the great exchange of our life for Christ's life remakes us at our core. Now, what's the purpose in all of this? It's not just to cure our self-hatred, although it does do that in time. It's not just to make us better people. Although Christ does make us into his image, and that is better. But you and I are meant to be put on display for the glory of Christ forever and ever. That's his purpose for your life. Verse 7 says this, 
why is he, you know, why is he doing all of this renovation? Well, <clears throat> verse 7, so that in the coming ages, he might show. He wants to show you off. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. When you are united with Christ, you become, along with all his people, like a model home, like a model unit where he takes people and he says, look at what I can do with your life. See what I did with their life? Do you see what I did with their self-hatred? Do you see what I did with their flaws? Do you see what I did with this individual's um, uh, shortcomings and brokenness and sin? Do you see what I did with their addiction? Do you see what I did to fill them with grace? They're a completely different person. You can still recognize them, but they've become who they are. Let me show you around. In the coming ages, this is what Jesus wants to do with your life. And when there's an offer to be united with Christ, just know this is his purpose. He's not just filling you with purpose. He's giving you a purpose, which is display his glory forever and ever. To display his kindness to you forever and ever. To display his love for, for humanity through you forever and ever. That's his purpose when he unites himself with us. See what I can do? Let me take you to all the spots that were really yucky before. Let's go down, let's look at the mold, see? We don't have to hide, we don't have to like close the basement door and duct tape it closed. Let's go down and see what's happened. Let's go to the porch where there was a, you know, neighbors couldn't even get inside the house. I remade it all, I put a porch swing up. Now this is a, a multi-ethnic gathering here. It's an open house and everyone's invited. He's not selling you. He's showing the people in your life what he can do with theirs. And he's glorifying himself through your glory. You're becoming a staging ground for the kindness of God. And don't you want that? Don't you want the world to see how kind God is through your life? Don't you want, to, don't you want the world to see how merciful God is based on how he's treated you? When he heals us from self-hatred, it's not just good for us, it's good for everyone in our life who's also really struggling to receive their true identity and receive the love of God in the places of their shame. You become a temple of glory, don't you want that? we become a temple of glory. Don't you want to just go from being an individual person, trying the best you can to make it every day, to hit your benchmarks every day, to be an acceptable person? Don't you want to become part of a family that has a great purpose, not only now here in Chicago, but for eternity? For by grace you have been saved through faith, verse eight says, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of work, so no one can boast most days, you know, you and I, we'd be happy to, to just be an improved version of our, of our self from yesterday, wouldn't we? Just a more productive person, just a more beautiful person, just a, just a, just a more virtuous person. We'd be proud of ourselves. But that's a cheap imitation of being saved through faith. 
being saved through faith, faith gets, gets us free from being caught in between pride and despair, pride and despair. Self-righteousness, self-hatred, self-righteousness, self-hatred. Don't you want to get free of that? For we are his workmanship, says verse 10. We are his workmanship. We are recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Lord has a vibrant life, a life of action, a life of effort for all who are united with him. We're no longer slaves to hiding or or a slave to just self-improvement. There will be work, there will be effort to own our union with Christ, which is already ours. And he will involve us in the renovation process. There will be disciplines like silence and solitude and confession of sin, fasting and prayer and worship with the saints. There will be effort, there will be, it it will, as C.S. Lewis says, feel a little gutting, but it will be so good. And then we will become a temple in the process and we will become active priests in that temple, working for the life of the world, offering refuge and shelter to to, to everybody in the way God has designed us to do. We'll be a source of Christ's presence on earth. That's what a temple is, a place where heaven and earth meet. And that's his calling on your life. And that's his calling on our life together. Uh, American Idol, you may remember that uh, all along the way of, of American Idol, the only way you got to keep singing was if you measured up according to the judges. You had to get up there and you had to endure the, the mean gaze and comments of Simon Cowell and, and whatever, you know, and Randy and, and Paula. I'm dating myself. But <laughs> you were always under the gun. You were always singing for your, uh, uh, for your continued existence, singing to justify yourself. Okay, but there came a time, didn't there, when whoever won the competition won the competition, and they were the undisputed American Idol. Okay? And you got to sing one last song, didn't you? And you just got to belt it out. No longer singing for the judges. No longer singing to win. You had already won. You could sing with freedom. You could sing with joy. What happens when we're united with Christ? We sing with joy because his victory is ours. We're seated with him in the heavenly places. Yes, we will still love God. Yes, we will still love our neighbor. Yes, we will partake in the effort involved in that as those who have been united with Christ. There's incredible freedom and there's so much difference when we can stop trying to cover up self-hatred when we begin to live out the good works that God has prepared beforehand. Do you see how beautiful this is? Once we were following the course that seemed logical and intuitive to us, but was actually part of a broken system 
designed to destroy us. But here, as those united with Christ, we live in a whole kingdom, a kingdom in a house, a growing temple, as Ephesians will later picture, a growing, beautiful temple that is full of glory and full of activity. We then begin to walk in the course that God has laid out for us beforehand, the original path we were originally supposed to walk not proving ourselves, but enjoying this great friendship and union we have with Christ and this great friendship and camaraderie that we have with his people who are also free, no longer caught up in the smoke of cover-up. Our efforts becomes an act of worship to display what we love about Christ. So if you've not been united with Christ, why not make the great exchange this morning? Is there a good reason not to? It simply begins with saying, Jesus Christ, I accept your offer of forgiveness and restoration. Please take my death, take my sin, take my moral failings and give me your life. Give me your forgiveness. Give me your grace and kindness and I confess that you're Lord over my house and over my life. And if you've been united with Christ but you're, you're, you're weary from a self-improvement project that you're secretly managing, you can invite Christ to take over in a fresh way. Invite him in. Invite him to the dark places. Invite him to the off-limits room. Invite him to the places where you are trying to measure up, the staging room and the basement. Confess your sins and experience grace. Confess your pride. Confess your boasting. Confess living for your own glory. If you are in Christ, you're not your own anymore. Now, who are you? My friends, I'm here to tell you that that's not a threat. Who are you? It's an invitation to become who you are, and it's an invitation for us to become who we are, Christ's workmanship, forever and ever, for the glory of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.